Would you bow with me for a word of prayer as we begin our time? Heavenly Father, once again we stand before you, ready to hear from you, from your word. Lord, we're thankful that we can be here together to open the Bible. Lord, we understand our dependence upon you in all things, and we know that you have given us your spirit to help us understand what you mean by what you say. So we're grateful for that, and we ask this morning that you would intend to our time, cause us to be changed in this moment, that you might be honored and glorified in us more so today than maybe even we were yesterday. So thank you for these times together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, today is an exciting day in our study together as we continue to walk through the book of Romans because today we are transitioning to the final section of Paul's letter to the believers in Rome. And so if you haven't read your bulletin, if you're not there already, please open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, from what I understand, I caused no small stir last Sunday as we were preaching through the end of Romans chapter 11 and the amount of verses that we covered last week is not my normal pattern. And so you'll be glad to know that this morning we're right back to where we were before. Probably even more so. We're like a train going down the track and we have now reached the border of a new country and all of us have to get off, check our passports, all that kind of stuff. So it's going to take some time. And so here we are at the gate and we're not going to move very far. But as we begin, it is my desire first to just introduce us to this entire section so that we know where we are going. All right, it's like when you go on a long trip, you're going to pull out the map and just familiarize yourself with where you need to go, the direction at least you're heading. And so that is where I want us to at least begin this morning. We are going to get into the details in some way of chapter 12, but I want us to just begin with somewhat of an overview. And so as we begin chapter 12, we're going to find why it is that we need to put great attention to the application of what we have already learned in the first 11 chapters. This is Paul's overall intent, beginning in chapter 12. Why is it important for us to listen so carefully to what we heard from chapters 1 to chapter 11? This is the general principle that is going to be applied overall in several areas as we walk through chapters 12 through 16. For example... In chapter 12, verses 3 through 21, we're going to hear how it is that we as Christians are to conduct ourselves in the church. How we are to live, how we are to act within the church. And then, as we move on to chapter 13, we're going to see how it is that we are to behave in our relationship to the world. So we start off with in the church, and then Paul transitions us in chapter 13 to the outside, to the world, and we're going to be challenged in our thinking about our response to the government. Government's pretty big in our day and age, at least in this country in the West. We hear of it all the time, at infinitum, at nauseum. In fact, as you turn on the TV, it is everywhere. It is on your social media accounts. It is all over the place with our government. And we're going to be challenged how we are to think and respond to our government. And also how we are to 
be in relationship to non-believers. And then you're going to come to chapter 14, and all of these truths are going to be applied back into the church. How we are to respond in ways within the church, and all of the ways that we can fight against the schemes of Satan himself to destroy the unity that is to exist within the body of Christ. And so by the time you get to chapter 15, verses 1 to 13, the issue of unity continues in the mind and heart of Paul, especially in terms of the relationship of the Jew and Gentile believer together, as that was a major problem during Paul's day. And while that may not seem so much like a problem for us today, there is plenty of problems within the church when it comes to ethnic relations. We like to call it race But it's really ethnic relationships and this whole idea within the church today dealing with ethnic issues and the confusion that has crept into the church through the voices of many who are out there today. So it's a very important thing. By the time we get to verse 14 of chapter 15, Paul finds it necessary to remind the believers who are in Rome, of care and concern for them so that their joy might increase. In other words, he so has such a caring heart for them as a pastor that he wants their joy to be filled to the maximum. And then, of course, he'll end that section in chapter 16 with a series of greetings and a series of thanks to various people that have helped him in the ministry. And then there's a final warning at the end against false teachers and how to deal with that kind of thing. And then, of course, he ends as he normally does with a final praise, a few more greetings, a final praise to God for what God is accomplishing. And so that's the general roadmap. That's the overall look as to where we are going over the next several months in our study. But for the rest of our time this morning, I want us to return just to the beginning of chapter 12 and focus our attention on just the first two verses. As I've already stated, that's the general introduction, if you will. Verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul is giving a general introduction into all that he intends to say in the remaining chapters. Much like he did back in chapter 1 with the intent of this entire epistle, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That's the intent of Paul in writing everything he's wrote. He's highlighting the reality of the gospel and how the gospel transforms lives. And here it's the same. In chapter 12, he hasn't changed from the gospel, but he gives this gentle introduction into all that he intends to say in the remaining chapters. But let us not think that simply because it's a general introduction, or at least as I've stated it, that there is nothing of value here for us. That certainly would not be true. That would be a wrong assumption for us to make at any kind of level. And I hope after our time this morning, you will never look at Romans 12, 1 and 2 in that kind of way as if it's, since it's generally an overview, that we can just pass on it quickly. So as we begin our time, we need to remember also where we have been. Right As we begin our time here in chapter 12, thinking about what is to come, we have to remember where we have been. We have to remember that we are coming off a study in chapters 9 through 11 concerning the future of Israel. And we spent several months in that. And it is clear from all that we have learned from chapters 9 to 11 that God is not only not finished with Israel in totality, 
as we saw Paul even proclaim. In other words, that God is going to spiritually save all the Jews that he has chosen to save. He is going to do that, and Paul is an example of that. But also, God is not finished with Israel as a nation in finality. Not only is he not finished in totality, but he is not finished with them in finality. The church is not Israel. God is going to physically bring Israel back to the land that he promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And he is going to rule them for a thousand years with righteousness, and they will be drawn to him. And the amazing part that we learned of God there not being finished with Israel in totality, the amazing part is that we as Gentile believers, we who are not Jews but have been saved by the grace of God given to us through the gospel by means of their rejection of the gospel, we have a part in bringing the gospel to the Jews. Our lives, our testimony, our Christian lives before God is being used by God to make them jealous. That is simply to say that you and I, as gospel-reflecting Christians, we have a monumental responsibility to live out the very gospel that we believe. We have a responsibility as Christians to be, in practical terms, each and every moment of our lives, gospel-reflecting people. Because our lives are being used by God to draw others to Himself. That makes this final section extremely important for us to hear and for us to do. I've said it before, and it needs to be repeated over and over again in our ears. How we live as Christians will have an effect on others. How we live will have an effect on other people. The world around us is watching us as Christians. And they are asking the question when they see us, I hear what they say, But do they live by it? I hear what they proclaim, but is that how they live? And you see, the big question is this, as Christians, are we putting our faith into practice? Are we actually living according to what we say we believe You see, we all have friends, we all have relatives, we all have acquaintances, we all have people that we are close to who who want nothing to do with hearing us talk about Jesus. I've heard testimony from several of you in our own church. They have children, you have moms and dads, you have family members, you have relatives who say, don't talk to me about that. I don't want to hear about Jesus. But the one voice that they cannot avoid is the voice of your life. They may not want to hear your voice, but they cannot avoid your life. And so it behooves us to place a great significance on our conduct as Christians. And in verses 1 and 2, we are introduced to this reality. And so we are moving from doctrine to practice from doctrine to practice 
And that is always what must happen with us as Christians. I was sitting in the adult Sunday school class this morning, and that's exactly what was being talked about from the book of Philippians. And I say it's, it's, it's so important because if all we have is doctrine, and doctrine's a must, we must have doctrine. People say, oh, don't give us doctrine. We don't teach doctrine here. Well, guess what? Teaching the truth is doctrine. We have doctrine. We need doctrine. There's nothing else that foundationally settles us but doctrine. But if all we have is doctrine and we have no practice of doctrine, then we become just puffed up people with a lot of head knowledge. But we think we're true Christians in our maturity, but we're really not. Or we can't swing the pendulum the other direction either in, in the extreme and say we do a lot of busy things. We do a whole host of Christian things that we label Christian activities, but we can never explain why we're doing them. We just do them because that's what we've always done. And, and we're really sure that we're doing it, but we're not really sure that it's a God-designed reality at all. We just go about doing it because it makes us feel good. We feel good doing it, so we do it. And so that isn't Christian maturity either. Both of those extremes have to be avoided. And so Paul here in Romans finished with the teaching of doctrine in a formalistic kind of way, if you will. He, he's still showing us doctrinal truth in the remaining chapters, but more formally in that sense, there's doctrine in chapters 1 to 11, and then chapters 12 to 16 is this practical reality. So he's, he's finished with the teaching of doctrine, and now he's exhorting us to put it into practice. And you notice how he begins this section. This is fascinating to me. Notice in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I urge you, therefore, brethren. Now, I just want to stop there for a minute. I was studying this week, and this just really hit me. One of the greatest difficulties, one of this is, I, I thought about how to say this the best way I can without coming across self-promoting. This is very interesting, Paul's language. One of the greatest difficulties as a pastor especially in our modern day, is fighting against the continual reality that at any moment there is the availability of other voices to speak in your ears. That of those that God has given us as leaders in this church to shepherd you as people at any moment, at any time, as you're driving your car, as you're in your own home, as you're here even this morning, you can pick up your phone and, and immediately get into your ears the voice of somebody else. The voice of some other guru, if you will. We live in a time when the very preaching and teaching that you receive here in this church at all levels, is easily drowned out by the voices of the latest and greatest book or the latest and greatest guru preacher voice that you might like euphonically in your own ears. And it is used by us as people as both a comparison and a critique of what you have. We live in a day and age of celebrity Christian preachers people flock to from all over the country so they can hear what is touted as the best teaching ever out there that could be heard. And I must admit, much of it is great teaching and profitable. Those men are mentors, many of them, of mine. 
And yet those men have become unreachable to the masses. They are whisked off to separate rooms after they teach. No one but the special few can ever get close to them. And those who stand on the outside only dream that maybe one day, one day I might meet such a wonderful teacher. And then they return to their own churches and they wish for teaching that reached such heights that they just heard. Instead of thanking God, they're disappointed that they don't have so-and-so in the pulpit or so-and-so in their Sunday school class or so-and-so at their church. Young men come out of seminary not with the primary desire to be simply faithful to God, to bring the Word of God to the people that God has given them, but they come out of seminary rather to build a following in which they will be seen one day as the celebrity Christian speaker. It's really sad. We live in deceptive times. Subtly deceptive because we would never think that we could be caught in that trap, and yet it's easy for us to do. And what is refreshing here in Romans chapter 12, as we just begin, is that this is the Apostle Paul writing. Let's not forget that. This is the Apostle Paul, the very well-known, very popular Apostle, who had seen the risen Lord. This is the Apostle Paul who had been personally taught by the Lord. And yet here is the Apostle Paul when it comes to Christian living. And the Apostle Paul is speaking about how to live your Christian life. And he identifies himself with us. He says, I urge you therefore, brethren. Brethren, a term of humility. A term of lowliness. He doesn't talk down to us. He sees himself simply as one of us. Just one of you guys. In fact, most of the people in the church in Rome were slaves or servants. Some were probably even Roman soldiers. As Paul had written, you know, there's even those in the Praetorian Guard who have heard the gospel, as he says in Philippians. Paul said to the Corinthian believers, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And yet here he is writing to us, the not many mighty, the not many noble, and he's identifying himself with us. He's putting himself on our level. I love that. That crushes this idea of celebrityism in the church. That crushes this high place of anybody in the church. And you see this throughout the New Testament, all over the place. All the New Testament writers are the same way. At the beginning of the, their, their books, oftentimes, there's particularly the Apostle Paul, he speaks with that authoritative position as an apostle. I, an apostle of Jesus Christ, I'm writing to you from an authoritative kind of sense because that has got, that's the place God has put me. I'm gifted in that way. That's where I am. And yet here and in all the New Testament books, you read the same thing. This is one who simply is identifying with us. It's refreshing to me as a Christian, but also as a pastor in our celebrity-driven society and celebrity-driven, sadly, now the church. There, here in a would-be celebrity pastor, the Apostle Paul, he just says, I'm just one of you guys. 
I'm just one of you. I think that's what refreshed me so much when we had Dr. Hughes here with us. Dr. Hughes for our men's conference last October was, was this kind of guy. Here's a guy who wrote all kinds of books, and yet he was just one of us. It was refreshing when he came to us Sunday morning to preach to us, and he said to me in my office, hey, by the way, do you have my commentary on Luke? I said, yeah, I have all your commentaries. Here it is right here. He says, good, because I forgot my notes on what I was going to preach this morning, and I need to get my notes out of my commentary. I thought, that's awesome. Listen, when the church begins to imitate the world in any kind of way, then we have violated principles of the New Testament. Paul sits down, as it were, right in the chair next to us, right next to us, and he says, we are brothers, we're sisters, we're one. We're just Christians struggling it out, battling it out. Here we are, we are sharers of this great salvation we have together, and this is for all of us. What I'm about to say, what I'm about to tell you, what I'm about to exhort you in is for all of us doesn't mean there's no distinctions in the church, right? That doesn't mean Paul's saying, listen, I'm not an apostle anymore. He's not saying that. We're all equipped. We're all gifted in different ways. We have different abilities. We have different places that God has put us in the body. But none of what is being emphasized here has anything to do with that. We are all in this battle together. We are Christians walking arm in arm, side by side. None of us are cloistered off where nobody can touch us. What matters here in the Apostle Paul's mind is what matters to all of us together. Every true teacher that you hear teaching the Word of God is like you. It's like you. They put their pants on the same way you do. They wake up with pride in their heart some mornings just like you do. They're struggling with sin just like you do. They're fighting the war just like you are. They're brethren. They're nothing but a sinner before God saved by grace. That's why we hear Paul beginning that way. And notice what he says. He says, I urge you. I urge you. He's not commanding us. He's not commanding us here. He's pleading with us. So the entire section is an exhortation from one who is just like us. This is the Apostle Paul sitting down with us just saying, Listen, I'm just like you. I beg you to listen to what I have to say. That's what's behind this. That's that's what begins this whole thing. That's what launches us into this whole section. I beg you as a brother, listen to me. So there's no listen to me because I'm an apostle. There's no listen to me because I've written 50 books. Paul could have said I wrote 13 of them. You need to listen to me because I've said a lot and a lot of people have read my books. There's none of that. I have so many followers on my blog page that you need to listen to me. There's none of that stuff. There's none of, I learned from so-and-so, so you must listen to me, therefore I'm the big shot, my words are important. No, there's none of that. It's simply listen because I'm one of you. That's it. Just a Christian. Got a few things to say. I've learned a few things from the Lord. 
Listen to me. And so the exhortation here and then the following chapters is about our Christian living, how we are to live. Paul says, I don't simply want to tell you this. I'm with you in this all the way. Now that just sets up for us an important distinction to make when we come to thinking about outward behavior as a Christian. Because there is a tendency in today's church, there is a tendency to elevate behavior to the supreme place. In other words, how I live is what causes me to be in the right standing with God. You can hear people say in the Christian community that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you live the good life. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're doing the right thing. Now, if you don't agree with what I'm saying there, all you have to do is pick up an obituary page of your local newspaper and read the obituaries. You might even know someone in them. Every person in there is going to be in heaven in the obituary pages. Why? Because every person who is dead, to their relatives, they're in heaven because they were good people. They lived a good life. And so therefore, they're okay. I don't believe I'm making too much of a little thing, really. That's a serious reality, and it has crept into the church, the same kind of thinking, because there are people who claim to be Christians who say that it doesn't matter what it is you believe as long as you do the right thing. But that's the exact opposite of what the Apostle Paul is emphasizing here and what is emphasized throughout the New Testament, because what really matters is not what we do. What really matters is why we do it. Let me say that again. What matters in the New Testament is not what we do, but why we do it. Why it is you are doing what you do. In other words, you can find two people, two people outside, just go out into the world, go down to the mall, take yourself and with some other person, compare yourself, and you're living in a similar way. You're morally good when you compare yourself to the rest of the world around. And you look at your lives collectively by way of example, and you conclude they're no different. And yet it's very possible that one of them, one of you, the person you talk to is not saved at all. How do you tell the difference? How do you tell the difference between someone who is truly a believer and someone who isn't? Well, you inquire, why do you do what you do? Why do you live that way? And that will tell you a whole host of things about the person. And you say, well, why are you emphasizing all of that? Because the entire section is not so much about, about what we are to do. See, we can read 12 to 16 and sometimes we come out with this nice list. Okay, here's what Christians are to do. And that's, there's truth there. There are things that we are to be doing. But really the emphasis behind it all is why. Why are we doing what we're doing? What is it that motivates us? That's the idea as true Christians. What is the motivator behind doing what we are exhorted here to do? To do all that we are being exhorted to do in these chapters. What is it that motivates us? Well, the answer to that 
is tied up for us in the word, therefore. I urge you, therefore, brethren. We know, of course, that's an important word in any text when you're studying the Bible. We've heard it in this church before. We've stated it before in our own studies here, right? When you see the word therefore, you ask yourself, what is the therefore, therefore? Right? That's just a simple thing to get in your mind. When you see it, ask yourself, what is it therefore? And the answer is that it points back. Points back to everything that has come before. And what has come before in our study? Right? Here we are, chapter 12. Paul says, I urge you, therefore, okay, what has come before? And all that has come before in our study is from chapter 1 to chapter 11. Everything Paul has said. That means that Paul is making an appeal to our minds. Right here. So Christian behavior begins by having an appeal made here by Paul to our minds, to our understanding when it comes to how we live. It isn't just simply this list of do's and don'ts and if I follow those, everything's good. No, we he, Paul is appealing to our thinking. In other words, proper Christian behavior has its motive born in an intellectual understanding of the gospel. Because that's what Paul's writing about. Remember chapter 1, verse 16 and 17? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. So proper Christian behavior begins with an intellectual understanding of the gospel. That means that our obedience as Christians is not some kind of rote activity. It's not some kind of just, oh, I crank it up today. It's not mechanical obedience to some set of rules. Christian living... And you and I could label it practical sanctification if we want to. That's a, that's a good term. You'll, you'll read that in books, uh, decent books on subjects of Christian obedience. Practical sanctification. That's the working out of your holiness, the working out of your set-apartness before God. Working that out is not simply conforming to some kind of pattern because that was, that's what others do who are called Christians. That's not Christian obedience. That's not what practical sanctification is there's certainly a plenty of people in the church across at large across the world and even here probably in our own heart at times who are doing that right somebody brings somebody to church this is what happens somebody brings somebody to church they claim then that they are a christian and somebody goes about telling them that oh you're continuing to go to church yeah you're a christian you need to stop doing this thing and start doing this thing. And that's what they're told. And so they begin to do that. That pattern in their life. They begin to start doing what they're told. But they don't know why they're doing it. They're just doing it. They have no understanding as to why they're doing it. All they know is, here's the rules. Here's what these people who are Christians are doing, and I'm a Christian now, these are the regulations, this is what it's called to be a Christian, and they go about playing the part, and yet they don't have an idea why they do what they do. And so they become like the rest, right? They couldn't tell you why they're doing it, they just know they're doing it. Why do you read your Bible? Well, because I'm told to. Why do you come to church? Well, because that's what Christians do. 
And all they've done is they've switched from one way of behavior to another way of behavior. They've just changed how they behave simply because it seems like it's the right thing to do. And yet here, here Paul is in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and he says the word therefore. And it tells us that all that kind of thinking that just carrying out road activity is wrong. We should never be living without understanding why. Paul's going to tell us how to live, but he says, but first, found that on why you do what you do. In other words, our minds, our thinking controls our behavior. Our Christian behavior has to be the outworking of the teaching that we know and understand. This is why doctrine is important. What is it that we are to understand about the teaching that we are heard? What is it we are to understand about chapters 1 through 11 that undergirds, that motivates us in this direction? Well, that's what I want to begin to unfold this morning. There's three motivating truths that are here, at least in verse 1, that I want to just scratch the surface of this morning. Three motivating truths. The first one is this. And just so you know for your notes, this is all we're getting to today. Okay? The first one is this. Don't forget what you were and what you have been given. Don't forget what you were and what you have been given. Notice what Paul says. I urge you, therefore, in other words, in light of all that we've already taught you, chapters 1 through 12, I urge you, as one of you, as a brother right by you, by the mercies of God. Don't just run past that phrase. By the mercies of God. It's a prepositional phrase. Right? I urge you by the mercies of God. What is it that motivates our Christian behavior? Or in light of what do we live our Christian life? In light of what? In light of the mercy of God. In light of the mercy of God. So what, what have we heard from Paul chapters 1 through 11, concerning the mercies of God. Well, we heard about the fall. We heard about the fall that men was made in the image of God and that men sinned against God, right? That was in chapter 1. Remember, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness of men. Right? We've heard about men's fall. And, and we hear about it specifically in chapter 1, verse 21, where Paul says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to God, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. That's the fall of man. Listen, you want to understand the problem with the world today and why the world thinks the way it thinks? You want to understand the problem when you scratch your head watching the insanity, the things that people say in our government and people say and follow? You want to understand why? There's the reason why. They think the way they think because they've rejected God. That's it. That's the answer. Their minds are only left with fallenness. 
They are futile in their thinking. There's not a coherent thought going on in there. I mean, in one sense, we can say, as fallen people, everyone who's fallen is brain dead. They don't know how to think their way to a real place because they're dead. And they worship and they serve the creature rather than the creator, Paul said in in Romans 1. So you see, it's our understanding then, Paul says at the beginning, it's our understanding of God that begins to help me determine how I'm to live. See, it's beginning to understand my relationship to this Creator God. And when I realize the reality of my fallenness before God, that changes how I think about me and how I think about how I should live. I might try to live a good life. I might try to live a better life than than everybody else lives. But I can't do it by myself. And as long as I think I can then I'm not a Christian. If I think I can attain it by myself, by my efforts, then I'm not a Christian regardless of what I say. Why? Because Christian people are people who understand that there is only one way of salvation, by faith in Christ alone. Paul said it in chapter 3 of Romans, verse 21. Justification is by faith alone. So I learned something about the mercy of God. That I'm fallen. And that God has granted justification by faith alone. This is how it's always happened. Even in the Old Testament, chapter 4 of Romans tells us, Abraham believed God and it was granted unto him righteousness. And if you are justified by faith, then you also understand that you are unified with Christ. Chapter 5 and 6 of Romans. And if you are unified with Christ, you know how great that is that as a Christian you are in Christ. You are completely unified with Christ in a vital, dynamic way so that it is no longer you who live, it's Christ who lives in you. And because you are in that position, you are there not by your own doing, not by your own intellectual assent to how great you were and you finally found God, but because God chose you. In fact, it went against everything that you are. You deserve none of it. And God was the one who brought you in by His own choosing. And we hear in Romans the great truths concerning predestination and calling and sanctification. And that God, by His grace and mercy, has put His Spirit within our hearts so that we are called the sons of God. God is our Father. We cry out to Him, Abba, Father, And we know that we can never be condemned. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. All because of the great mercy of God. And to help us not be arrogant and conceited as to our own new gift of salvation. We learn that God isn't finished with Israel yet. That we are not a new Israel. We are actually been grafted into the, and it's the root that supports us, not us that supports the root. And God is still graciously moving with the Jews whom he chose years ago. And his promises are irrevocable. And God is using us by his mercy and grace and unfathomably so that we, by our salvation and how we live, would cause the Jews to be jealous of the very thing that God has granted to us. And all of that flows out of that reality of understanding the mercy of God, that you are an instrument of mercy. 
that God was merciful to you. And so we are exhorted here by the Apostle Paul to live our Christian lives in light of our knowledge and our understanding of the mercy that God has shown to us. That's why you do what you do. You don't do what you do because the Bible says here's, ten, here's a list of ten things that you must do in order to be a Christian. No, you do what you do even when it's hard to do it and even when it's a sacrifice of your entire being because the mercy of God on you. You see, there's not so much the idea of what we do, but why we do it. Why we do it. Let me put it another way, and I trust this will help us in a practical way. Turn over to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, of course, Al has already graciously taken the adult Sunday school class through that chapter. And I want to emphasize something here that Paul says that maybe will help us in this area, this idea of why we do what we do and what it's to look like. In chapter 1, beginning in verse 21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in this flesh, this will remain fruitful labor for me. I do not know which to choose, but I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to part and be with Christ. For that's very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. You see, Paul even sees in his desire to serve and honor Christ the reality that God is using him in the lives of others, that the way he lives and how he goes about it and what God is doing in his life is having an effect on other people. And I'm convinced of this. I know I shall remain and continue with you for all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me might abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Paul's saying, listen, I don't want you to follow me and, and think highly of me because it's all about me. There's no celebrity reality in my life. I just want you to point to Christ. It's all about Christ and me. And then he says this in verse 27. Only... Conduct yourselves. Now, that's Christian conduct. Here's how you live. This is your behavior. Here's your behavior, Philippians. Conduct yourselves, notice, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You ever think of your behavior like that? What you do as a Christian. Paul says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The words worthy manner or in a manner worthy can also be stated a different way. Some of your Bible translations might even have it. It can be stated this way. Let it be fitting. Let it be fitting. Only let your, uh, let your conduct, let it be fitting of the gospel. Let it be fitting of the gospel. That's the idea. In other words, let your life, let the outworking of your life, the behavior of your life, what you do, the, the picture that others have of you as a Christian, let that life be fit. Let it fit the gospel of Christ. Now think about that for a moment and how we live and, and what we do, right? Let's just take, for example, how we dress. 
All right, Pastor, you're getting a little close. The stove's getting a little hot with that. Well, let's put it there. Right? Clothes, clothes in and of themselves are an amoral thing. Right? Clothes aren't sinful in and of themselves. They're clothes. They're nothing. They're an object. Clothes and the adornment are not sinful in and of themselves. So when it comes to clothes, we normally ask this question. Is it appropriate? Right? That's a normal question we ask. Is that appropriate for you to wear that or for me to wear that? And oftentimes, and I would venture to say most of the time, we are defining the appropriateness of our dress by our culture, by the culture in which we live. And we cannot dismiss culture altogether. We can't do that. That would be unwise to do that. I mean, God has raised us up in this culture. It would be bizarre for us in this culture to wear togas around like maybe Paul wore. It just, it's just wouldn't fit. But from, from this text, Philippians 1 verse 27, we cannot simply ask, is it appropriate? We can't ask that. Because what we have to ask is, is it fitting the gospel of Christ? Is it adorning the gospel? Does my clothes, how I dress, reflect and adorn the proclamation of the gospel of Christ? Is how I look, is how I dress, is what I wear a reflection, a picture, so that others would say, that person knows Jesus Christ? That's the idea. And so Paul is telling the Philippian believers to have their lives, have their behavior, have their conduct, all aspects of life, match the gospel. Match the gospel. Here's how he said it to the Corinthians. Chapter 10, verse 31. Doesn't matter what you do, even eating and drinking. Do it to the what? Glory of God. So that God's character is reflected. So that God is seen. So let's go back to Romans chapter 12. Because this is what Paul is implying here in verse 1. What should motivate our Christian lives? What should motivate our Christian living? What motivates it is not what is appropriate for the moment. That's not what should motivate our Christian living. Is it appropriate? Or asking the question as we often do, what's wrong with it? That's what oftentimes we ask, because if we can't find a verse in the Bible or somewhere else in the Bible that says, thou shalt not, then, hey, what's wrong with it? That's the kind of question we ask ourselves, sadly. We can't be asking that. What should motivate our behavior and what we should be asking ourselves is first and foremost, what should motivate it is an understanding that I am who I am in Christ because of the mercy of God and that my life is to reflect the message of the gospel. Therefore, our behavior has to reflect that. Whatever we do, even down to the mundane task of eating and drinking. We are to do that reality. We are to live according to and under the motivation of that I sit where I sit simply by the mercy of God and my life is to reflect the glory of God. It is to be fitting of the gospel. It's so easy for us to live in ways that do not adorn the gospel. The world is clamoring for our attention. 
Everywhere you turn, the world is saying, do this, do this, be this way. Here's this, you have time, I'll come my way. And the voices of others can easily drown out the truth. But when I remember what God has done for me, all that He's done, chapters 1 through 11, then I know why I need to live a certain way. Not what I'm doing, it's why I'm doing it. The reason for living in a way that adorns the gospel is because I'm a child of God and I have a hope of glory. That's why. I don't live that way because my friends will get frustrated with me if I do or if I don't. I don't live that way because my church might say something to me if I do or if I don't. I live the way I live because I'm a child of God with the hope of glory. Here's how the Apostle John said it. 1 John 3, 3. Here's how he said it. Every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. He's talking about the hope of glory. He's talking about all the mercy of God. He's talking about the gospel, the fact that we are saved at all, the fact that we were fallen and God by his mercy and grace has taken us out of the quagmire of our sin and brought us into new life. He's transferred us from the domain of darkness into the domain of his dear son and that mercy ought to be flooding our minds all the time when I wake up and before I go to bed at night, every time, everything I do, when I reach in my closet to pull out the clothes I dress, I want to just adorn the gospel. That's the first motive born out of the doctrine that we've been taught. We are testimonies of the mercy of God. To live any other way is to contradict who God has made me and to contradict the gospel that saved me. I want to end our time this morning by going back really quickly to Luke. Luke chapter 7. It's a fascinating reality that's taking place here. Jesus, of course, is ministering. Pharisees were always having trouble with it. They were curious. They wanted to know who is this guy? What is he all about? One Pharisee was requesting that Jesus come and dine with him, beginning in verse 36 of Luke 7. And he enters the Pharisee's house and he reclines at the table, the normal practice. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him, that is behind Jesus, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. So you got this this spectacle going on. Here's Jesus in the Pharisee's house. The Pharisee would have never invited this woman into into his house. And she knows Jesus is there. She wants to be near Jesus. She realizes the reality of the mercy of God in her life. She goes and she just wants to be at the feet of Jesus. She just wants to worship Jesus. 
Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, so this is under his voice, this is in his own self, this man were a prophet, he would know who this woman is, what sort of person she is who is touching him. She's a sinner. She's of the most vile kind. Do you see the comparison going on already? The woman realizes the mercy of God. The Pharisee is tied up in what I do, what he does. And Jesus answers and says to him, of course, Jesus being God in the flesh knows what Simon is thinking. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. Almost with a smug voice you can hear there. Go ahead, say it. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. Denarii was a, a day's wage. One owed 500 days salary. And the other 50 days salary. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? The question being asked is the same question that is to motivate our Christian living. Which of you realizes the mercy you've been shown? That's the idea. Who do you think is going to realize the, the debt of gratitude they should have for this one who forgave them more? Simon answers and says, I suppose. Pharisees never wanted to pin themselves down into a box. I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you've judged correctly. I love that. I'm sure if I would have been there in my own sinful smugness, I would have said, you hypocrite. Jesus just graciously, you judge correctly. Why? Because he's going to find out who he is. Turning toward the woman, he says to Simon. See, he turns to the woman and he says to Simon, do you see this woman? I mean, it's almost a... I mean, Jesus is just cranking the finger down right in the heart of Simon. You see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. That was the standard practice. At least you'd wash the guests' feet when they came in. Simon did none of that. You gave me no water for my feet. But she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. She's sacrificing her own self for me. You gave me no kiss. And she, since the time I came in, hasn't ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with perfume. She's, she's spent everything for me, Simon. You did nothing. For this reason I say to you, Simon, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven her. Why? Because she loved much. Jesus isn't saying because she loved him with this activity that he forgave her sins. He's saying, listen, Simon, you need to understand something. She's doing what she's doing because she understands who she was. She understands the mercy of God on her. She loved much, but he who is forgiven little, what do they do? They love little. You see the point? Simon didn't think he, it took much for God to do anything for him. God, don't take the day off. I'm okay. I got it all together. And so Simon didn't love. Listen, we will obey and live adorning the gospel when we realize the mercy God has for us. When we understand we've been forgiven much, we'll love much. 
Jesus says, if you love me, you'll what? Keep my commandments. You'll keep my commandments. And those who were reclining with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he says to the woman, your faith has saved you. You and I one day will be standing in glory. As Al said, we'll be standing at the reward place where Christ is handing out rewards and this woman will be there with us. Why? Because her behavior wasn't what she was doing, it was why she was doing it. She knew she was forgiven much. Paul says in Romans 12, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God. You want to motivate Christian living in your life? Play in the tape who you are, who you were, and what God has done. And that will begin to stir up in you, not what you do, but why you do it. Change your whole perspective. Well, we, we started. Didn't get far, but we got there. I trust that was helpful for us. We'll get more next time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for what you have taught us this day about your mercy. We were wretched sinners and we stand here, trophies of grace, the reality of your mercy shown to us. Lord, we say with words, we know we could never earn it. But oftentimes our lives reflect the reality that we think we can. And what we do is not born out of a motivation simply to see your name glorified and the gospel adorned in our life, but because we want others to look at us and think we're mature. I'm a good Christian. I do all the right things. Don't question my life. Oh, Lord, help us to remove any vestige of that. Cause us to think rightly about what you have done for us. Help us to think deeply about where we were. We didn't deserve any of the grace and mercy you gave us, but only because of your mercy do we stand here this day as your children. Cause us to realize we've been forgiven much, and so we can love much. For you are a wonderful, merciful Savior. So bless your saints this day that your name would be honored above all because of our Savior Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen.